0: I invite you to get your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, we're continuing a sermon series called Organic Disciples. It's a very simple series. We began the year with it. It's a good good sort of topic to begin the year with because it looks at six practices, six things that the Bible says create and form us to be like Jesus. Well, the first thing that creates and forms us to be like Jesus is God's grace. None of these practices without the grace of God uh, accomplish the task. It's all through grace. But because of grace that's been given to us, the Bible invites us to engage in these practices. And as we do, we're formed to be like Jesus. So today we're looking at this practice of abundant generosity, which simply means we, as disciples of Jesus, we live with open hands. Like this is the posture of our life, to live with open hands. So how many of you recognize this opening line of a novel? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's Dickens in his novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And the two cities in question, as you may recall from 11th grade uh, uh, literature, uh, was London that was in the middle of the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror and all of that. And, and, sorry, Paris, which was in the middle of all that, and London And Dickens spins this tale of this person going between the two cities and sets it against that backdrop. Well, in 2 Corinthians 8, we could say that it's a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two communities of Christ's followers. What you're going to see early on in the passage, and we'll read it here in a second, is a group of followers in the region known as Macedonia. Macedonia. And the followers of Jesus there lived more agrarian lives. They lived more rural lives. It was not a wealthy community of believers by any stretch of the imagination. They largely were uh, farmers and didn't have a lot of resources. But there's a second city, and it's the city to which this book was addressed, the city of Corinth. And Corinth was much different than the northern region of Macedonia. It's a seaport city. And it's affluent, wealthy, cosmopolitan. Corinth has all access to all the great things of Greek and Roman culture. It was a decadent city. It was known for uh, its uh, vices, if you will. And so the community of believers there in Corinth, they were living in the, the midst of all of that. And so there are these two groups of Christ followers, one group in Macedonia and the other in the city of Corinth, a tale of two cities. And Paul is inviting both groups, but he's inviting specifically the Corinthians to live with open hands, to be a people of abundant generosity. And he begins this admonition by contrasting the generosity of the Macedonians with what he's calling the Corinthians to do. And so let's jump into it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 7. It goes like this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. And look at verse 7. This is key. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in the love that we have kindled in you, since you excel in all these things, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. There are two cities here. It's a tale of two cities. Church in Macedonia, the church in Corinth. But I should say it's probably a tale of three cities. You see, there's a third group of believers that are at play in this passage. It's the group of believers that gather in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was the mother church of the entire Christian movement. You will recall the Pentecost story where the Holy Spirit came, the church was born, and we get this description of the Jerusalem church in Acts 2. They held everything in common. They sold their possessions. They gave to anyone that had need. They had an awesome uh, distribution of food program that was going on. It was this incredibly generous group of people that sent people out, that underwrote the the work of missions. And so the Jerusalem church was the mother church, and they sent out Paul and Barnabas, and they sent out Thomas, and they sent out Philip, and they supported this work of taking the good news of Jesus to, what did Jesus call them to do? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And the Jerusalem church was all about that. But what has happened In 20 years since Pentecost, and that's when Paul's writing this to the Corinthians, 20 years since Pentecost, a lot of things have happened. The church has been established. The mission to the Mediterranean world has been successful, and Paul and Barnabas are starting churches, but there in Jerusalem, they've come up against a famine, and there's a severe shortage of food. And not only is there a severe shortage of food there at the mother church, but The Jerusalem church is largely Jews, ethnic Jews, who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And the same people that crucified Jesus, the same people that wanted to stop the message of the gospel, were persecuting the Jerusalem church. And so now you have Jewish believers there in Jerusalem not only dealing with the economic downturn of a famine, but they're also experiencing persecution at the hands of the Jewish religious establishment. And so Paul does something revolutionary for this moment in history. He attempts to cross the the most acute, the most stark racial and ethnic divide of the ancient world. If you want to think about racism and discrimination and apartheid and all of those things that, and anti-Semitism and all of those things that we have First hand knowledge of, because many of us have lived through those or maybe we're living in those, those are realities even in the 21st century. None of that is as acute as the divide between Jew and Gentile. It was stark, it was distinct. These ethnic groups did not cross. But in the Holy Spirit, what does Paul write to the Galatian church? There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is doing something miraculous and it's evidenced in the fact that Paul can go to a, Gentile, a predominantly Gentile church and say, would you give to these Jewish folks? Would you support what they're doing? Would you give an offering of relief and an offering to fund their ministry so that they can continue to send people out into the work of God? Would you do that? And Gentiles did that for Jews. And the Jewish church originally did it so that Gentiles might come in. So look what God is doing in the church. Jew and Gentile, they're coming together and they're being generous towards one another. And what Paul says to the Corinthian church, he's saying, Hey, Look what the Macedonian church did. The Macedonian church, they put aside their prejudices. They put aside whatever distinctions there are between Jew and Gentile. They recognized that God was blessing this ministry and they gave out of their poverty. And if the Macedonians can give out of their poverty, well, Corinth, uh, you're in a much different situation than the Macedonians. You're wealthy. You're affluent. You live in a seaport city. You live in one of the most developed cities in all the ancient world. People throughout the Mediterranean, they they want to come to Corinth. It's an exciting place to be. But there's some other things we know about Corinth. (laughs) You can just flip through your Bible and you can see that Paul not only wrote one letter, but he wrote two letters. We're in 2 Corinthians. What you may not know is scholars are certain there's a third letter and then scholars are fairly certain there's a fourth letter. So the third and fourth letters somehow have been lost in antiquity. And so we don't have this correspondence from Paul. If you are cleaning out your grandmother's attic and you find parchment that looks like the second or the fourth uh, letter to the Corinthians, please let me know. I, I want to make that find. I'd like for my name to be in the Journal of Biblical Archaeology. That'd be awesome. Um, but, but no, we haven't found it. And, and it's, it's probably lost to antiquity. But what that tells us is not that they were doing so great. It tells us that they needed a lot of attention. The Corinthians needed a lot of attention. They needed a lot of of smoothing out, and they needed a lot of of oversight from Paul. The first letter in our Bible, 1 Corinthians, it's a little more scathing. He's addressing a whole lot of issues that are going on. The second letter is a little softer, but both of them are are really trying to address some of the problems that come along with being in a culture that decadent, that affluent, that cosmopolitan. And I just don't think it's an accident that Paul's biggest problem church, now you've heard of problem children, but Paul had a problem church and it was Corinth. The church that gave him the most problems was also its wealthiest. The church that gave Paul the most problems was the one that had access to the most developed technology of that time. The church that gave him the most problem, they were connected to, to vices and all kinds of things for pleasure. And it was just a world of excess that was going on in Corinth. In some ways, how is our journey with Jesus, a tale of two cities. I mean, as you think about what God is doing in, in the world, I know people who are following Jesus that really embody this kind of Macedonian ethos of the church. They're living under persecution, or they're living in extreme poverty, and yet they're being faithful, and they're being generous. You heard about it last week. We had some missionaries, Esteban and Darianna, uh, uh, Murillo from Panama, they shared what God is doing in the Mesoamerica region, and I think about what our sisters and brothers in that part of the world are doing and how they are sharing the gospel and how they are giving generously. They're underwriting uh, ministries that used to be funded by the sending church of of the Americas. They're doing that themselves. They're, They're doing it out of their poverty, and it's amazing to see. So I feel like we're connected to a Macedonian church in that sense, but If there was a paradigm or a model in Scripture that that most captures our experience, would it be Macedonia or would it be Corinth? I think it's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty much every church in the United States, especially compared to other churches in the world. We have access to technology. We have access to resources. We have excess of of money in, in lots of different ways. And we also have access to credit that people in the world don't always have. And we don't always use that in wise ways. We're more like Corinth. We live in a world of excess. And it's tempting for us to think that this material stuff that is in our bank accounts or this material stuff that fills our home or all of that stuff in your storage unit is what ultimately matters. If you drive around Bentonville, you're going to see a lot of new construction. Whatever's being built, it's one of two things. It's either a restaurant or a storage unit. Because we got a lot of stuff. We got so much stuff that we can't even fit it in our house. We got to rent some other place for all of our stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a storage unit. I, I, I don't think. The 11th commandment is thou shalt not have a storage unit. But maybe before you rent a storage unit, you should think about all your stuff. Like, do you have too much stuff? Do you have so much stuff that it begins to own you? And, and, I, and I think just living in Corinth, living in Bentonville, living in a world of excess, it would be easy for us to think that these are the things that ultimately make meaning of our lives. Another thing I've found about about living in, in Bentonville specifically, I think this is true of Northwest Arkansas, is so much of corporate culture affects our culture at large. There are terms that we use in corporate culture. There are values that we have in corporate culture. And you're going to walk into your office and you're going to have some, some values that you hammered out at an executive retreat and everybody agreed on them or boards of directors said these are the values of the company. And, you know, obviously teamwork's going to be there and there's going to be an image of guys like rowing down a lake together and that's your teamwork core value. I mean, those are the things that are up on the walls. But the real reason for being of every company in this town is to increase shareholder value. I don't know that we say it out loud like that, but that is the the ultimate reason why all of these companies exist. And that core value at the fundamental level of, of everything companies and corporations do, it has a way of coloring the way we see the world. It has a way of coloring how we make moral and ethical decisions. I'll give you an example of this, how this culture sort of seeps into our worldview. Uh, In some ways, you know, I've been through the best of times, but maybe maybe you would say with me that 2020 was the worst of times some lingering effects from 2020 that we, were, we would still say, you know, it, it was the worst of times. So there we were in the, towards the end of 2020. We were living through the worst of times. And of all the things that we went through in that year, this national reckoning of racial justice and racial inequity bubbled up to the surface. And cities were being... You, know, you saw that playing out in urban centers all across the United States. You even saw it here in Bentonville in a very real and tangible way. Like people demanding justice, people demanding for racial equality. And so that conversation was happening, and there was a, a group here in northwest Arkansas that said, what if we brought the business community together, and faith leaders together, and political leaders together, and And let's equip these organizations to have this very important conversation that needs to happen. That sounded like something that I wanted to be a part of because I knew you would want me to be a part of that. And so I went and I was there in a meeting with other leaders. And and these organizers were saying, like, this is what it looks like to practice uh, uh, equity. And this is what it looks like to create just cultures in your business or in your organization. And they went through the entire workshop and then they opened it up for questions there was one person there. Of course, he was white. And he said this after this entire, you know, presentation on on all that was going on. He said, and I quote, I remember writing it down because it struck me. He said, if we implement in this our company, what's the ROI? And you guys have been around long enough to know. I've learned all these acronyms since I've lived in Bentonville, by the way. What's the ROI? What's the return on investment? Because of what the underlying assumption there was, if we're going to combat racism, if we're going to deal with people who are experiencing discrimination and try to create just and equitable structures in our company, there's got to be some kind of immediate short-term return on that investment. We can't do that just because it's the right thing to do. There has to be some kind of evidence on the balance sheet that makes this worth my time is exactly what this individual was saying. And how often does keeping score that way, how often does that value seep into the decisions that we make and the things that we do, specifically with these resources that God has given to us that we have received with open hands? And a people of abundance, and I'll say this about the gentleman in that meeting, I actually appreciated his candor. He finally said, he finally said it out loud. We're able to to name what we really value. So I appreciated his candor. It was actually refreshing. But followers of Jesus are called to play by a different scorecard, friends, are they not? We're called to play by a different scorecard. And so Paul appeals to this in the next section. Look at verse 8. He says this, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We don't have to ask as followers of Jesus, what's in it for us? What's the short-term gain? Because what Paul says here is that Jesus has made an exchange that no CEO would ever make. He had all power. He had all authority. He had all wealth. He had everything. And he who had all wealth, power, he traded it to become poor. He traded it to become like us. He emptied and divested himself of all of that. And he became poor so that, what's the so that? We might become rich. So that we might become rich. He became poor so that we might become rich. This is what God does in the incarnation. This is why he sent his one and only son. God the Father himself holds his son with open hands and freely gives his son. For the sake of the world, because of not some short term gain, not some return on investment, but because of love, because the Bible says God is love. And when God is love, this is what God does. He gives. He gives so that those who are poor might become rich. What Paul's tapping into here in 2 Corinthians is parallel to what he said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He says Jesus Christ, who was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but here's the word, emptied himself. It's the word kenao. Emptied himself to divest oneself of power and wealth and riches and everything for the sake of humanity. And this description of the downward mobility of Jesus it is something we call the doctrine of kenosis. The doctrine of kenosis. Now, don't confuse this with ketosis. Those of you that are still on your keto plan from January 1st, I applaud you. I fell off that wagon on January 5th. But don't confuse this with ketosis. This is kenosis it says Christ emptied himself of his divine power and attributes to become fully human and fully surrendered to the will of the Father. And what you want to circle there in that definition is here's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, fully surrendered, fully surrendered to the will of the Father. He's given himself fully to this work of God. And Paul says, Or or what Jesus would go on to say, as he washes the, the feet of his disciples, he looks at them and he says, do as I have done. And so that's the practice for us as we think about living with abundant generosity, as we think about living with open hands, God who was rich became poor for our sake, and then Jesus washes our feet, he looks at us and he says, do as I have done. Live this way in the world. Live with open hands. And so, returning to verse 7, let's excel in this grace of giving. Paul's so clever. Did you know the Corinthians, with all their excess and wealth and cosmopolitan culture and all that, did you know they were like super competitive too? Super competitive. And so he says, hey, these Macedonians, they're excelling They're doing this at really high levels. You want to excel in that too, don't you? You excel in faith and love and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness. And and then he says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You don't want to be outgiven by the Macedonians. So Paul calls us to excel, to exceed, to go beyond our capacity by the grace given to us by God. Friends, what happens when we excel in this grace of giving? What happens when we excel in this grace of giving? For starters, living with open hands, it captures the attention of a world that is possessed by possessions. Living with open hands, it captures the attention of a world possessed by possessions. I want to remind you that, you know, Proverbs says The root of all evil is the love of money. It didn't say the root of all evil is money. It said the root of all evil is the love of money. And friends, we have not used money the way it was intended to be used. Jesus told so many parables about money. So many parables had financial implications. Jesus wasn't ignoring this very necessary physical reality. But every time he told a parable about money and he called us to be stewards of it, he was was making this implication that the people of God use money as a lever to accomplish the mission of God. tells a story about someone who was given five talents and they make ten, someone who was given two and they make four. But the person who was scolded in the story was the person that took his one and buried it. So Jesus says, be studious. Be a wise steward of that which you have, but know that it's used to accomplish my mission in the world. Don't be possessed by possessions. I think about a few years ago. It's hard to believe it's been a few years ago. It's been more than a minute. Since God put a vision on our heart to build the sanctuary that you're in right now. And that story, from the time it began to where even we are today, by the way, the parking garage will be done, probably middle of March. You will park there for Easter. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and we didn't pay for it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. There's so much of that story I want to tell, but I don't have time to. But but God put a vision on our heart to build this sanctuary. We begin to share that vision, we begin to talk to people about it. We begin to talk about what we could do in this facility. And there was a person that they had become disconnected to our church. But they said, man, that sounds good. That's exciting. Would you come by my house and would you talk with me about it? I said, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to do that. And so I, I went by their house and, and I shared with them the vision. And I had a little PowerPoint ready. And I flipped my laptop up and began to walk through all the things that we were going to do and how God was going to use it. And, uh, and they said, that's exciting, um, the Lord's, you know, put this on my heart and, and I want to give to that and made one of the first gifts to, to make this facility happen. And, and it, was, it was sizable and uh, I was really excited about that. But as I'm leaving, this person said to me and um, they said, you know, I'm excited about this and I'm going to keep this in prayer. Uh, but I would have done more, but I'm just worried about the future. I'm just, just worried about the future. I, I'm scared, and, and you never know what you might need for a rainy day. And so just, just pray for me. I'm, I'm just worried. Now, I wasn't worried until he said that. Because, friends, I'm telling you, literally, a hundred times my net worth. No joke, no exaggeration. If he's scared, man, I should be terrified. Like, I I wanted to call Lauren immediately and say, have a yard sale. We need to liquidate everything. Because if we have a rainy day, we're sunk. He's scared. He's the canary in the coal mine. He knows way more than I do about anything. And if he's scared, I should be terrified. And And I thought about that conversation. And I thought about how wealth should be liberating. Because when you have a certain amount of wealth, then you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. You don't don't worry about the, the roof over your head. You don't worry about all transportation, how you're going to get places. Wealth should be liberating. But the more we acquire and the more we accumulate, we become obsessed or consumed or vigilant to how we protect it, how we guard it, how we invest it. And what should liberate us actually enslaves us. That's if you hold it with closed hands. If you hold it with closed hands, that which could liberate you will enslave you. But friend, what if you did what the Bible calls us to do? What if you held your resources with open hands and you said, hey, God, thank you. Thank you for blessing me with resources. Thank you for giving me levers and buttons that I can push and pull to advance the mission of God. How exciting is that? Lord, you put it into my hand. I'm going to steward it. I'm going to manage it. It's yours. But Lord, I'm holding it with open hands because my trust is not in this stuff in my hand. My trust is in you. My trust is completely in you. And a people that live like that, In a world that's possessed by by possessions, that gets the attention of the world. The world looks at a people like that and they say, wow, that is generosity. That is liberation. They're not not enslaved by their wealth. They're liberated by it because they've surrendered it to God. Living with open hands, it prevents us from being consumed by greed. The psalmist says this, the earth... Is everything. Sorry, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's the first principle of stewardship by recognizing that everything in your hand is God's. It's not yours. It's God's. The second part of that is this: the things that God puts in your hands, why would you think that God gives them to you exclusively for your own consumption? Why would you think that? Does God act that way in any story in the Bible in which he puts resources into the hands of his people purely for their personal consumption? It never happens. He puts resources in the hands of his people so that it can be used to advance his mission and accomplish his divine purposes in the world. And so when we live with open hands, it prevents us from being consumed with greed. Finally, here's the best part of this. Living with open hands allows us to receive the blessings of God. You can't receive what God wants to put into your life like this. You can only receive it like this, as a faithful steward with open hands. Towards the end of this section, Paul says this, verse 13. He says, "'Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed,' but that there might be equality in this tale of two cities with these poor Macedonians and these these people in Jerusalem that are experiencing all kinds of uh, persecution and famine and these Corinthians that have lots of wealth through the power of the Holy Spirit, there might be equality. Verse 14, At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty... They have resources that don't show up on a balance sheet. Their plenty will supply what you need. You have deficiencies that don't show up on a balance sheet. You have relational deficiencies. You have spiritual deficiencies. And you need them as much as they need you. The goal is equality, says Paul. Verse 15, As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too little and the one who gathered little did not have too little. What are you saying there, Paul? What is that from? He takes us back to the book of Leviticus, where this amazing story happens, where the slaves are coming out of Egypt. They're still slaves. They've been liberated, but they still act like slaves. So they get to the desert, and they, they complain there's nothing to eat here. And so God provides for them. They wake up the next day, and they, they go out into the desert, and they look on the floor, and there's these white flaky, seeds everywhere, these white flakes of bread everywhere. It's called manna. The Hebrew word manna, it literally means, what is it? It's mystery bread. You've heard of wonder bread? This was mystery bread. What is it? What is it? We don't even know what it is. Let's just gather it up and let's eat it. It's tasty and it's yummy. And so they would gather it up and God gave them very specific instructions. Don't hoard it, don't put it in your storage unit. It won't be good the next day. Take what you need for today. And those that gather much, they don't have too much. Those that gather a little, it's not too little. It's enough for everyone. And Paul is saying this is what it looks like to live in Christian community. This is what it looks like to depend upon the Lord. And friend, this is the posture of disciples. This is a life of abundant generosity. And I'll share with you one spiritual discipline, one mechanism that helps you with this more than anything else, and that's the practice of storehouse tithing. I talk about tithing in the same breath with reading your Bible, with praying. It is a spiritual discipline that by grace God uses to shape you to be more like Jesus. And so what God does when you tithe When you sacrificially and obediently give 10% of your income to the local church for the work of God, God takes that gift and He multiplies it and He uses it to do things you could never do on your own. You're part of a church. You're part of a church that is a platform for untold generosity in this community. We give meals to people at Thanksgiving. We throw baby showers for people who, who, who need them. We feed the hungry. We participate with what God is doing around the world through global missions. God is engaged, we are engaged in in meeting needs and being a a generous people in this community. And the world takes notice and the world sees what it looks like to not be possessed by possessions. And that is all through your faithful support of the local church. So just as a real practical matter, I would say check out our website, Go to communitynwa.church and click on the Give tab. It takes you to our giving page. It tells you what we're doing through the GoFund. It tells you the partnerships we have in places like the Dominican Republic and Senegal. Your gifts are literally going all around the world. It tells you about what we're doing locally here in our community. And oh, by the way, God's giving you an amazing pastoral staff, and they're teaching your children to love Jesus, and they're baptizing your young, and they're discipling your teenagers and they're caring for your sick and your dying all of that is through your gift. And so there on our giving page it, take you to our portal and what Lauren and I have found was setting up a regular gift comes out every week comes out with regularity it's a rhythm that we've built into our life. Setting up that regular gift is it, just allowed us to practice stewardship consistently and faithfully and it shapes us to be like Jesus. So I encourage you to look at that today as God is dealing with your heart, as God is teaching you to live with open hands.